Welcome back to Incremental Podrick the Podcast, the show that brings you insightful conversation with thought leaders and experts from the marketing technology world. This episode is part of our Orchestrating Measurement series, an audio continuation of the white paper we've recently published. I'm Hadar Tellum, Director of Business Product Operations at Incremental, and I've joined Incremental a few months ago after years of being on the advertiser side. With my previous role as Director of Marketing Analytics at Huge Games, and after playing other analytical roles at Platica and marketing agencies. I have joined Incremental as I truly believe the vision and use the platform as a customer previously myself. I'll be hosting this episode together with Maol Sadra, CEO and co-founder of Incremental. Our guest today is Eric Suffert, the founder of Mobile Dev Memo, Heracles Capital, and probably one of the most well-known analysts, if not the most known, in the world of mobile marketing. Eric has been very vocal about the changes in our landscape and especially about the topic of measurement. As a disclaimer, Eric is an investor at Incremental. But before we dive into this exciting discussion, make sure you're subscribed to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have a wealth of knowledge, insights and inspiration lined up for you. Without any further delays, sit back and enjoy the Measurement Orchestra interview with Eric. Hello, Mr. Eric. Hello, Mauer. Hello, Hadar. How are you both doing? Good. It's uh, very, very nice to see you again. You as well. Always nice to see you. So, Eric, I'm actually wondering if I should ask you to introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. So, my name is Eric. I am an independent analyst of the mobile ecosystem. I uh, worked for a long time as an operator across uh, monetization, user acquisition, general strategy roles at a number of scaled mobile gaming companies. Um, did a stint as sort of a full-time consultant, uh, which is actually how I met Hadar back in 2019, was that? When I was, uh, I did the, uh, the engagement for Huge Games. Very long time ago, but yeah, I remember you visiting our office in Tel Aviv, good times. Yeah, it was right before COVID. Uh, so I remember I, I was yeah. like on the road for like a month or something because I had all these different engagements lined up. And that was back when, you know, travel was the norm, right? And so I was all over Europe and, and the Middle East on that trip. Well, the Middle East being, being Israel, Tel Aviv. But um, yeah, anyway, so um, that's my background. Now I sort of split my time across Mobile Dev Memo, which is the trade blog that I write related to digital advertising, Um digital product monetization, digital privacy, things of that nature. Um, my venture fund, Heracles Capital, which is a sort of $10 million micro fund focused on mobile. Um, and, you know, a smattering of random consulting engagements that that crop up from time to time. It's not a core focus of mine, but but nonetheless, um, I, I do that still. Yeah, I always wonder, like, how do you actually manage your, your time? Because you are involved with a lot of things. Um, it is a challenge, but um, I think that I've just gotten really good at time management and discipline over, you know, the number of years that I've been doing this. Right. I mean, that's one thing I always, I, people are constantly asking me about like, how do you spin up a consulting practice? How do you become, you know, a, a, a sort of domain expert to, to the point where people want to pay you, uh, you know, reasonably, um, high amount of, large amount of money, uh, to, to, solve problems for them. And 
And, and one of the biggest issues I always sort of point out is like, you're going to be very much, um, you're going to feel the need to say yes to everything and take on every single project. Because if you don't, it's, it's, there's a very sort of like obvious and concrete opportunity cost to that, or, 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 or just like very real and concrete and, and measurable and quantifiable amount of money that you leave on the table. Um, but if you don't ultimately become very adept at managing your time, you're just going to get burnt out and then you'll, you'll be unsuccessful. Right. And so I think that's, that's, that's really the biggest hurdle to clear in becoming kind of like an independent consultant um, is, is, is being able to manage your time. Well, I think it, there's also like a natural proclivity to juggling lots of projects that I think is needed because being an independent consultant and which I don't do by the way anymore as a full-time job, I have these other things. I do a little bit of consulting, but not very much. But back when I was a full-time consultant, A, I was traveling all the time, which was, would, would have been impossible now because I have a family. Um, but you know, pre-family when it was just my wife and I, that, that was okay. That was acceptable. Um, and a lot of times she could come with me. We were, we were dinks, you know, dual income, no kids. It was easy. Uh, now it'd be impossible, right? It just, it just wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be worth it. I wouldn't want to give up that time with my family, but A, you're going to be traveling a lot, but B, you're, you're going to be constantly context switching. And, and if you just don't have a natural affinity for that, you are really going to hate consulting. Yeah. I, I yeah, I can see it. Like, I think it completely makes sense. And you know, like one of the things I really like about, uh, about you and like, uh, again, we know each other for, for quite some time and we, definitely like speak quite regularly is that you're you're always like on top of what's going on um you're that one percent basically i think well that's another part of the job too you know it's just staying at the frontier of information right because ultimately like that's your competitive advantage in a lot of ways um and that's what people are paying you for it's like okay well there's this unmanageable um abundance of information out there i want someone who's going to parse all of it and explain it to me in you know sort of like very pointed easy to understand terms like that that ultimately has to be now there's a whole bunch of work product that you can build on top of that and i i'm a very technical person so i've done a lot of work like implementing mmms for clients and i'm sure we're going to get to that i'm um, just and just doing a lot of like deep an analytical work for companies helping them build analytics infrastructure but a lot of that now especially now because the privacy landscape is so dynamic um it's it's a big part of the job as a consultant, as an advisor, whatever, is staying at that sort of frontier of information. So you can help guide a lot of those resource allocation decisions. Because if you're going to invest a million dollars, $2 million into an, 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 a, the, the sort of like total overhaul of an analytics system, you want to make sure it's future-proofed, right? And I'm sure we'll get into this. That This is why, you know, I was, I was sort of like very vocal with a lot of companies that I worked for in the sort of initial transformation process with ATT. Don't build a reliance on workarounds. You will not be able to depend on those in two years. If you are going to go through this project, you want to do it one time. You don't want to rebuild your analytics system in three years because um, you sort of, uh, you adapted it to, 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 to be utterly dependent on fingerprinting. If you did that, you're going to have to do the same exercise again. And if you're going to do this, do it right and future-proof it and pick the right technologies, pick the right tools um, that will allow you to rely on this system for the next five years. Before we go into the actual questions we prepped, and like because again, you, you do interface with a lot of companies. If you had to ballpark percent of people who are still in denial, what would you what you just what would you say it is? I mean, I, I would just approach this from the other direction. How many companies have built this tech in a future-proofed, durable way? Five. In the mobile gaming space, there's five. And I think I've worked with most of them, right? There are five companies. So it's like throwing out a percentage, it, it's it's not even like relevant because it's 99 point whatever. 
Um, there are, if I can count the number of companies that have taken this very seriously and have built this kind of infrastructure in-house or have at least um, onboarded the, the SaaS products that they need and, and integrated that into the, into the reporting infrastructure in a, in a way that is, is functional and actionable and not just like another report, right? That they don't really focus on or that they use as like this ensemble of reporting. Like the people that are totally dedicated to this and have built the analytics infrastructure, they have formatted the reporting to, to align with that. Um, and then they have institutionalized that across the organization from the head of UA to the CMO, to the CEO, to the CFO, there are five. There are five big scaled companies that have done that. Yeah. I'm I, not gonna I, name, they're not, I'm not, no, I'm not no, gonna no, name for them. Sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. No, we're not. We're not trying to make a sensationalization here. Anyway, so um, yeah, one of the reasons why uh, we thank you for this podcast is again recently we published this white paper which you contributed the quote to. Um, the whole purpose of the white paper was a very educational white paper on not going and outing like this is good, this is bad. Basically said, hey, there is like three major methodologies of measurements, and smart marketers should apply now when. When I basically ping you with like a request for a quote, you 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 said something super interesting. You said relying solely on last click attribution gave birth to an era of myopic marketing thinking. What did you mean with that? Um, great question. So I have this uh, presentation that I've been giving. I gave like an early version of it at MAU, but I've refined it quite a bit, and I've been just giving this presentation to you know, groups of advertisers uh, or, you know, marketing teams internally at companies. Um, and it's called Flying Blind, right? And I talk about, you know, this, I use this example of this guy, James Doolittle. He was a, a, a Medal of Honor recipient, a World War II hero. Um, but he was also the first ever pilot to um, take off in a plane, to run a flight path and to land the plane using only flight instruments in his plane and and not having a visible line of sight to his surroundings, right? And the way that he proved that he had no line of sight was that he zipped a hood over his over the cockpit, right? So it's like, it was one of those planes where the cockpit was like open air. Um, so it's just a hole in the plane, right? That you'd sit in. And so um, what he did was he zipped a hood over his his head, essentially, um, or over the, the opening of the cockpit. And he, 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 he relied exclusively on the instrumentation in his, in his aircraft. And, and by the way, he did, he'd invented a lot of this instrumentation to allow for this. And, you know, that's a very scary, it's obviously a very scary thing to, to do, right? I mean, that, you know, most people would not want to do that. They, they would, they would prefer to have a line of sight. They would probably feel, um, you know, a, an ex extreme level of discomfort by not being able to see the surroundings. But why did he want to do that? Because that opened up an enormous amount of opportunity um, for flying when visibility was low, right? So prior to him proving that you can do this, uh, planes couldn't really take off and fly at night. They couldn't really take off and fly uh, when it was very foggy out, right? And so what he, what he, when he, in proving that you, you don't need a line of sight to, to the landscape, to your surroundings, to fly a plane, um, you, 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 you just open up so many more opportunities for flying, right? Now, I think the analogy to mobile marketing or to marketing in general, to digital advertising is very clear, right? If you need deterministic identity, then there are only a handful of things that you can, there are only a handful of, of, of uh, tactics that you can employ with digital advertising. If you don't need that, you can literally advertise anywhere in any format. Um, and, and, if you can, and if you have a, a system that can measure that, um, then you just have so many more opportunities for, uh, for reaching potential customers, right? And so um, in my, so that's the kind of, that's the background on the, on the talk, but in, in the talk, I talk about you know, three of the downsides of 
advertising with a, a total uh, wholesale reliance on, on deterministic identity. And one of them is hammer nail syndrome, right? When all you have a hammer, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you are totally reliant on deterministic advertising, well, then you are totally limited to direct response uh, advertising channels that allow for that, right? Um, and so you are going to just uh, default to like last click attribution because, well, that's the best, that's the sort of easiest and, and lowest friction way to accomplish that. And then the other thing um, that I bring up as a downside, it's really more of like a philosophical, um, uh, you know, philosophical issue is, is uh, you run into uh, uh, um, Wittgenstein's ruler, uh, uh, a Wittgenstein's ruler constraint when you are totally dependent on deterministic attribution. And, and that's, that's an article I wrote a couple months ago about like, uh, it's called like Wittgenstein's ruler, uh, deterministic attribution and, and mobile and marketing measurement. And the idea there is like, this is a concept that uh, Nassim Taleb came up with though, is, is that, you know, my interpretability of any sort of uh, a system uh, or, uh, or um, you know, call it framework for doing some type of analysis uh, is, is informed by the person who runs that framework's level of expertise in that space, right? And so um, their, their system of analysis could potentially measure some effect or some dynamic or some relationship, but similarly, it could also just measure their ability to do that, right? Uh, you, you take a ruler to a table, and if you don't know much about tables, uh, not only does the ruler give you information about tables, but the table gives you information about the ruler, right? Is the kind of that's the way he sort of implements that idea. And so, really, when I talk to marketing teams um, and they tell me about you know their system for doing uh, pseudo deterministic measurement uh, in this new privacy landscape, it tells me more about their ability to understand the system than it does about their system of measurement. Their system of measurement. Um, is not credible, right? And so it tells me more about their the, the amount of analytical rigor that they bring to that process um, than it tells me about uh, the robustness of their measurement system, which is is not robust at all, right? And so if you build a culture where you make the assumption that everything was, and this is pre-ATT, this is pre-ITP. I was, I was giving a talk two weeks ago on this subject and, um, you know, someone was asking me like, well, what happens if the privacy landscape uh, sort of starts moving in the opposite direction? It gets more open and transparent. And, and that was, that actually like, I give these talks all the time. I feel like I've heard every question. I hadn't heard that question before. And it sort of like caught me off guard, right? Cause I never considered it. Um, and the reason I had never considered it is I just don't think it's, it's realistic. Um, but what I told him is like, look, okay, well, even if that happens, it's still probably a good idea to implement probabilistic attribution because the, wholesale reliance on deterministic identity prior, even prior to ATT, even prior to ITP, many, many years ago was misguided, right? And this will make, this will make your measurement better. And so I said, even if I was giving, if I, this, I believe the advice I'm giving in my talk is good advice. Um, maybe you disagree, but I think so. That's why I'm doing it. But uh, I think it would have been good advice five years ago. It would have been less uh, immediately necessary advice Right? There would have been less of an imperative to implement that advice, but nonetheless, it would have been good advice. You're going to be much more robust at measurement if you can manage that with probabilistic signal and probabilistic uh, or, or, and, and statistical techniques that, that measure causal inference. Right, And, and that was true pre-ATT. Um, and so even if things do move backwards in time, which I don't think they will, you're still better off if you implement this stuff. By the way, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the hammer nail. So 
like when I when I was collecting contributors and quotes for the white paper, I, I rejected the ones who were overselling their own service product, whatever. And it was actually Alex Bauer from Branch, who in his quotes specifically also used this hammer nail analogy uh, when referring to click-based attribution, user-based attribution, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating is one of the reasons why I said, okay, Alex, like your quote is completely in. You're not trying to oversell here, like the capabilities. And I obviously completely agree with you. And like, like I think we both saw that the problem existed way before ATT. And like we started talking about it and I started working on incremental way before ATT. ATT just made our like education unnecessary. Yeah, we almost do not need to educate anyone because luckily Apple and Google kind of like force everyone to, hey, you got to learn this stuff or you're effed. I think the problem is that most of the advertisers are just reliant so much on visibility. It's hard to take something after you see it. It's very difficult to kind of get used to something as a marketer and then get it taken away from you. Like I get the mindset, but it has to be changed already. Like so many things has changed in kind of privacy um, changes and kind of all the loss of information that we already have. So we are losing things one by one, ATT, Facebook AMM, all of this kind of gradually, mm -hmm. but continuously they grow and the data change. And like when I was kind of um, recruiting and training analysts, four, five years ago, the training was totally different than it is today. It's not that we had like one single source of truth at, at any time, but right. it was quite straightforward. You have deterministic attribution, you have probabilistic attribution. This is what you do. This is how the data looks like. This is the raw data. This is how you aggregate it. This is how you display this to user. This is how you take insights. But the data itself changed. The sources have changed. Now they're kind of more friction. Now you have to see if you can combine them. If you cannot combine them, you usually can't. And then what do you display? How do you take insights? How do you set targets? How do you kind of make sure that what you see is actually aligned with what the company needs? So all of this has changed. And I think that companies are still like heavily reliant on the visibility that they had four years ago and they like deeply want everything to be simple i get that but it has to be changed yeah this is, yeah i i agree 100 and that that is the sort of like underlying uh uh conceptual measure uh sorry uh, conceptual message of like the hammer nail syndrome point that i make in the in the in the talk which is that like if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail if all you have is deterministic measurement then everything is going to look like a perfectly measurable um you know uh fully sort of auditable click purchase relationship um that w is is just on its face not reflective of the reality of of your of your marketing program right so like i've seen so many cases of that so it's just like well, when all i have is deterministic measurement then everything sort of fits into this last click paradigm but that's not the best that wasn't the best way to measure uh marketing contribution five years ago right and 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 you'd see these you'd, you'd, you'd see situations where you know a company shows me the you know the reporting or whatever and it's like look everything is fully deterministically uh uh attributable Right. And it's like, well, on its face, that's not true. Like, I know you're counting organics in this. I know you're claiming organics in this. It has to. And and you can see that there's an organic contribution factor. So how are you trying to map all of this? How are you trying to build this model that accommodates everything into the deterministic bucket when you know there's a dynamic here? There's an effect that um, 
that, in, that influences organic contribution, even if it is a function of spend, that's fine. But you need to measure that. And you can't do that if, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If all you have is deterministic measurement, everything looks like a directly attributable click purchase paradigm. But it's not. There's, uh, there's a sort of there's a model that should fit on top of that, that should inform like what the best level of spend is to drive that organic uh, contribution to, to, uh, to drive like uh, sort of like an awareness effect, like all of those things, those are like fuzzier concepts. They're not, they're not, they're not perfectly observable, right? So you need a model on top of that. And if you weren't doing that, you were just giving all of these platforms credit for things that they were not really um, responsible for. Yeah, I fully agree. I think that, um, you've said the term privacy apocalypse as far as I remember and know, right? It's kind of attributed to you mainly, like as far as I remember. Um, and I think that the landscape has changed really dramatically since ATT and everything that came after and also everything that came before. It was a gradual and continuous change, as uh, we said earlier. But as the market changed and marketing measurement changed, how have you adapted or how have you kind of consulted companies to adapt their marketing strategy and budget allocation decisions? So I actually never used the term privacy apocalypse. I, I had couched my analysis of, um, so I wrote kind of three articles that included the word apocalypse in the time. I'm just, this is me being like super pedantic, but um, so I wrote an article called Apocalypse Soon what happens when the iOS advertising ID is deprecated? I wrote that in February, 2020. So that was before the announcement in June, but I basically went through this like uh, hypothetical exercise of like, okay, let's say that Apple deprecates the IDFA, what would happen? And it was like this kind of hypothetical timeline of, of how things happen. And then I wrote another one, Apocalypse Now for WWC, the IDFA is dead. I wrote that on the day that ATT was announced. And then I wrote Apocalypse Later, IDFA deprecation is delayed. And I, I posted that I, wrote, I posted that in September 7th when they announced that they were going to delay the rollout. Um, the Definitely only reason I used predicted the word apocalypse, but maybe not privacy apocalypse. But I think these no, no. articles were shared so many times that it's kind of, you're kind of the names that come up when you think about kind of ATT apocalypse and all that. Well, yeah, maybe. But um, anyway, the, the, the only reason I use that word is I, I just watched... Uh, Apocalypse Now, the uh, um, the Vietnam uh, War movie with oh. Mar uh, Marlon Brando and Martin Sheen. So that, that's why that word came to mind when I wrote that. Anyway, anyway um, yeah, so what have companies been doing? So I think um, there's like a few components to like the uh, remediation plan, if you want to call it. There's like the, the renovation project, right, for, for, the, for, the, enti for the entire uh marketing measurements uh apparatus right so one of those is, is the actual building of the tools or the onboarding of the tools right so if someone comes to incremental and that's they've done that they they, they onboard incremental that's a tool that will help them to do that you need the tool incremental is a great tool lots of people love it feedback has been universally positive when i've spoken to people and they understood and they understood how to use it um but that's but but in, in any case uh uh, this is me cheerleading for my investment here, but which, you know, full disclosure, I've invested in incremental three times. So uh, I'm a big fan of the company, and the product. Um, but anyway, that's, that's first step. That's just getting the tool. And, and actually step zero is just determining what kind of tool you want and what kind of tool is going to work best for your product. Um, that's just a process that, but that requires some sort of like familiarity with the concept. And I think that's where a lot of people get thrown off, especially startups, right? Where you've got maybe a CEO who, feels pretty comfortable with the topic of 
digital advertising, but they're not a domain expert and they don't know that much about measurement. They just know like cookie measure all, IDFA measure all, you know, MMP measure all. And that's, that's their sort of, um, uh, their, that's their point of reference. So step zero is just, okay, looking at the landscape, figuring out like what kind of tool supports our marketing efforts the best, given the peculiarities of our product, the, um, you know, the, the, the specific, uh, uh, you know, the, the specific characteristics of our, our market niche, what, what best supports our, our marketing efforts, right? So that's just an exercise. It's an exploration exercise. It's going out, talking to a bunch of vendors, talking to people at bigger companies that do this, you know, just gathering a bunch of information. Then it's selecting slash building the tool. Maybe you onboard a SaaS tool like incremental. Maybe you build something internally. Maybe you, you, you bring an, an ensemble of tools to, to bear um, for, for this purpose, but, but it's just the building stage, like building whatever you're onboarding, building whatever you're going to do and, and, and hooking everything up, doing all the plumbing with your own um, data infrastructure. So that's, that's step one. Step two is adapting the reporting. And so just trying to get some sort of sensible reporting as output of this tool that guides your marketing decisions, right? Now that reporting is going to look a lot different. Like we, we discussed this, uh, Mauer, in the, in the podcast with Julian. That reporting is just going to look a lot different. And so making that adaptation is, is part of this step two, right? It's, it's just figuring out how to use what you can get out of these tools because it's not going to be campaign A yesterday had day zero row as of whatever. So you're not going to get that anymore. That's gone. You need to be able to operate without that, right? And so just making that adaption and understanding the limitations. Or I don't want to say limitations, just the differences, right? And then step three is socializing that internally and making sure that everyone's on board with this new operating paradigm, everyone understands it, and everyone, all the sort of downstream workflows that are dependent on marketing reporting have, um, have made that adaptation, right? And, and have, um, you know, have just, you know, been retrofitted to, 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 to work with this, this new tool, this new infrastructure, this new reporting, right? That's the hardest part. Maybe, maybe step two, which is just scoping out the, 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 the uh, immediate marketing workflow adaptations that's that's hard too but the the step three is like adapting every single downstream workflow to this that's the hardest part because these people are not domain experts the cfo is not a domain expert in marketing measurement now i mean i've met a lot of cfos that are very very bright and they can understand it and they can learn it it's not rocket science but it's it's they you know they generally don't uh without having to go through some effort right and that is where things get really difficult because a lot of the pushback on trying to cling to these workarounds and loopholes and the pseudo deterministic comes from the CFO or comes from the CFO. Look, I can't communicate this to my investors or look, I don't know how to build a PNL to support this. Like it just breaks everything that I've done. It's not just the marketing part that breaks and has to be adapted. It's, it's everything, everything that is downstream dependent on marketing spend, which for a digital first company, an app first company, is literally everything. I mean, you talk to any, I mean, scaled companies, UA or digital advertising spend is like, could be the number one line item expense. This is not this uh, ancillary function, um, you know, that, uh, that is not critically important to the success of the business in real time. It is, it's the heartbeat of the business. And so everything is dependent on it. And so doing that sort of like institutional, um, uh, you know, institutional uh, level up to adapt to, to this, this reporting and this way of doing things is critically important. And that's where I see people get hung up the most because the marketing team could understand everything about this. But if the CFO doesn't buy in, the CEO doesn't buy in, whatever, the, the VP of product doesn't buy in, 
um, you're just gonna you're gonna uh, be confronted with an incredible amount of tension. I agree. How do you, how do you kind of convince to get the buy-in? Well, you have no choice. You, you have no choice. It's like if you want to be forward thinking about this stuff, you sh- well, you, first of all, you should have been doing this a while back, but you know, the second best time is to start now, right? And so you have no choice. Like, what are you going to do? Cookie measure everything. Well, cookies are going away next year. Uh, MMP measure everything. Well, on Android, yeah, but the GAID is going away next year. And, and on iOS, like, you know, fingerprinting is going away this year. So w- what choice do you have? It's, it's adapt or die. It's, it's not like you have uh, a, a, a sort of uh, menu of options here. You've got one option, which is to adapt. Otherwise, you just won't be able to do, you won't be able to measure your marketing. It's funny. So, Eric, you, you published something, I think, the last couple of days um, around the CFO. Okay. And like, I think two weeks ago, I wrote an article that was the CFO CMO conundrum. Okay. Which is almost addressing the same thing you wrote about, by the way. I was wondering if uh, subconsciously my article influenced uh, or inspired yours, but put it aside. Um, my question here. So, again, we're reaching a point where you have like attribution, incrementality, MMM, okay? Like three, let's say, major methodologies. We can also dissect mm-hmm. it further, but I think it's besides the point. Um, you got to st- start somewhere. And like you could reach a point where you have like the data science pushing for this, marketing pushing for that, CFO or CMO or CEO pushes for that. Whose job is it to actually be the conductor? That's a great question. I think this goes back to like an age old question of who should. Who, who, sh- what, who should be the executive owner of user acquisition broadly, right? And I've, I, I think I wrote an article about this and I just kind of like mapped out the pros and cons of the different options, right? So one is like a CMO. I think, I think more and more that's probably not um, the, the most appropriate owner for user acquisition. I think um, unless the CFO or sorry, the CMO is, is, is sort of like um, very first of all, analytically rigorous, but also um, dexterous in a way that they can map different activities uh, to a performance marketing workflow that a lot of CMOs just feel very reluctant to do. Like a lot of CMOs feel like get, get defensive when you talk about performance marketing, right? Like, no, we do brand marketing. And like, I've read about this, you know, you know, ad nauseum, but like, I don't see brand marketing and performance marketing as uh, diametrically in opposition. I see them as uh, as working in concert underneath the performance marketing framework, there I, now I see, I see brand marketing and direct response marketing and delayed response marketing being points on a spectrum, but that spectrum exists within the performance marketing framework. And I, I, I think it's very dangerous when CMOS view their role as performance, uh, sorry, as brand marketing, as brand building, and all the other stuff as being not part of their remit, meaning direct response. I, I, I think that all fits under the CMO's remit. But I think we've just reached a point in time where um, the historical baggage of the CMO role doesn't allow for that. And a lot of the sort of uh, most high profile CMOs are not marketing experts, they're branding experts. And they there's just been this total diversion in those skill sets, right? Um, I think, and so I, I made that case in the article and I made the case the CFO might be the most appropriate uh, executive owner of, you know, a user acquisition function, a, 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 a performance marketing function. And I, I think that's even more so the case today than it was when I wrote that piece, which would have been like 2016-ish or something. Um, because of how more, much more challenging it is to build a PL around marketing with uh, probabilistic tools, 
I think you need the person who's the most expert at doing that to own it um, and to um, to be responsible for the ways and the degree to which the the marketing function contributes to the company's growth and, and the overall sort of like, you know, um, revenue profile. And so I, I just think those things fit really nicely together. It's CFO, the CFO owns analytics, they own user acquisition, right? They're, they're, they tend to be like highly analytical, highly curious people um, who are very, very sort of like detail oriented. I think that's really needed now to uh, apply the discipline that's necessary to say, okay, we've changed this measurement paradigm. It's a little bit less precise. Um, it's a little bit like less reliable with any sort of, um, you know, any sort of like reporting precision. Um, but nonetheless, we need to make sure that this is integrated into our just general operating uh, procedure in, in, a, in a way that that is um, in a way that's actionable. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense for the CFO to own that now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that a lot of companies uh, would be quite angry <laughs> or would disagree with what you said. But I think that this is the reality. Uh, maybe CMOs would get offended. But I think that this is just how things are. And this is how basically more analytical resources are required now to make any marketing related decisions. So I think it's really on point. Uh, what is the worst, in your opinion, that can happen to companies that do not adopt an inclusive paradigm of measurement? What does your workflow look like if you don't, right? I mean, if you're kind of clinging to this idea of pseudo-deterministic measurement, I mean, that's got a very clear expiration date in my mind. You know, a cookie measure everything is not going to be true next year. Um, uh, fingerprinting is, is not going to be reliable. And so what are you going to do? Like, what other choice do you have? I mean, I guess you could go all in on scan. Um, and, you know, scan is a useful input to a model, but it, 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 it's not, you can't completely rely on it. And, and even and if you did, even if you did, you still need to have some sort of like probabilistic model on top of it because it's not capturing everything, right? There's still a, uh, there's still a, 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 an estimation that happens with whatever conversion value you're going to get to ultimate value of the user. And so you still need probabilistic, uh, you know, you, you, there's still some sort of like probabilistic approach that needs to be taken, even if you're fully 100% entirely reliant on scan, because scan doesn't capture everything, right? Um, scan is not a uh, utterly complete picture of the result of marketing activities. It's a signal, right? And so interpreting signal by definition invokes like probabilistic, um, you know, probabilistic uh, methodologies. So, um, so I think scans like a really great input to a probabilistic model, but it's it's not the end all be all because you still have to uh, you still have to make assumptions based on the scan postbacks, and and they're not real time, um, they're obfuscated. So there's still just like an adjustment that needs to happen there, and ideally that adjustment is is based on some sort of like probabilistic prior, right, uh, or some, some some sort of like probabilist some probability distribution, you know that um, that encapsulates uh, some priors. So. So no, I mean, you just, you just don't have it, or, or you just YOLO it and you say, it's not going to measure it. Like we're going to use revenue and if revenue go up, we're going to just keep doing what we're doing. Um, honestly, for like a small startup, maybe that's the best approach. Cause I mean, you're not, you're probably not going to be spending enough to even unlock the value of a probabilistic measurement approach. Right. I mean, you, you, you need a lot of data to make this work. Cause you have to fill out those priors. You have to fill out that distribution. Um, and so if you're spending, you know, 500 bucks a month 
a thousand bucks a month, you just won't be able to get there. And so, yeah, maybe just YOLOing it and doing going all in on TikTok or going all in. I mean, I think going all in on one channel is a viable solution. Um, and just saying, look, we can't build this kind of probabilistic measurement, uh, you know, platform that that is needed to sort of um, inform the best allocation of budget across a number of known channels because we don't have any prior knowledge of those channels. And so we have a cold start issue. And, you know, in order to even build out the data set, it's going to be very expensive. Why don't I just operate on Facebook? Use their model conversions to inform my ad spend. I'm only going to optimize ad spend on that channel because that's the only channel I'm working on. And, and I feel like fairly confident that their uh, estimates are, are, are realistic. You, the, the media mix model comes into, uh, into effect. I mean, even maybe the incrementality model comes into effect when there's competing sources of new users and revenue that you need to try to um, measure the, the effect sizes from. But if you've only got one, well, then you probably just use their native measurement tool and then, and then kind of kick the can down the road until you've um, surpassed that. Now, the problem is a lot of startups coming out, coming out of the gate want to like minimize their acquisition costs. And, and probably the best way to do that is to diversify the spend across a number of channels, right? Um, uh, but well, then at that point, you need a measurement solution. By the way, I see things uh, like, so I think even more controversially, like, or even more drastically. And I'm, I'm looking at some, again, of the overselling. Okay, a lot of companies right now are overselling what they can do with fingerprinting and what they will be able to do in the future with fingerprinting and inferring from the 4 to 10 to 30 to 50% of users that do opt-in. And a lot of companies are really over-promising like what their like technology is capable of, even though, again, it's like once you just peel one layer of the onion, you see that it's not. And again, I might be very controversial in what I'm going to say, but it's... It's almost kind of like the uh, the dealer's uh, approach, okay? The drug dealer's approach. I mean, you're going to have repeating business until they die off, and you're just going to move to the next customer. Um, and I think that a lot of companies will just go for what they're told and just continue spending and relying on old habits and will literally, again, burn their budget to the point of bankruptcy, and there is no salvation from that. You're talking about the new players, the new players, which I completely agree with you, the the way to now scale a new product is to test it gradually with one channel at a time until you figure out what actually works and then you can scale. And then again, you reach a point where you can measure incrementality on the go. And at some point, once you have enough scale, you can also utilize things like MMM to basically build prediction, forecasting, um, scenario planning, and so on. But in the meanwhile, we're still talking about a lot of players out there who still live in denial and still just follow what they're told and again, looking again, the, the quotes that I just didn't take for the white paper were those that were just completely over-promising the capabilities of different methods. Yeah, um, yeah, no, very, very true. I think um, the over-promising, I think, is ultimately going to backfire for a lot of these companies because uh, it's they want very much for their clients to believe that they have to make no adaptations to their workflow or to the I call it like the connective tissue within the company that all you know that that spider webs out for marketing and that's like a really attractive promise to make like that's a very alluring um notion but it's ultimately not true and so if you promise that it's just going to make it look like your tool doesn't work uh and and so like you're you're going to end up you know you you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot at that point. If if what you'd, you'd rather 
not promise the moon here, right? Because you want sort of people to like readily accept the reality before they embark on this process of integrating your tool, because they're only going to do it once, right? And so they integrate the tool and everything breaks because you're trying to shoehorn, uh, um, you know, the sort of the, the, this, this new, totally new and totally, you know, unique to the organization methodology for doing marketing measurement um, on the singular source of growth for the company, which is ad spend. Um, and then you try to like uh, modify the output to just fit the old level of reporting. Everything's going to break and you're going to end up making really bad decisions um, that, that convince, uh, you know, convince the company that either like, hey, we're just not viable anymore because um, we can't scale or that the tool was a bad choice and they're going to jettison it and go find something new. Right. And, and, and actually embark on this process in earnest. So it just, it just feels a little bit self-sabotaging. Like when I see companies promising that this will just plug in very nicely. It's like, uh, you know, I have a, I have a buddy who um, he built, he has a business where he retrofits old cars, like classic cars as EVs. Right. And it is like pretty turnkey and it, it's all, all like the really like beautiful, like old uh, Corvettes and, and like Shelby Cobras and stuff like that. And um, it's like turnkey. You hop in, you turn, you press the button and it's like, I have no idea what's going on under the hood, but like this is faster and like more responsive and it's just a nicer car than it was. It doesn't smell because it doesn't bring gas. Yeah, that works. You can do that because all they're interfacing with is the shell. All the, all the plumbing underneath has been, you know, uh, uh, you know, totally um re realigned with the the ev and and a lot of times it's even where the, en the engine placement is different right but you wouldn't know that just from looking at the car but you can't that's not the same here because it touches everything it's like literally it, it, it would change the way you drive if, if we you know drew like a perfect parallel with the, the adaptation with marketing measurement like you drive differently as a result of having the electric uh you know sort of like battery driven um you know source of locomotion you drive differently. You you take turns differently. Like literally, everything about driving the car would be different as a function of the source of locomotion. Versus, uh, you know, just swapping out all the insides doesn't doesn't really change anything about your experience, right? So, like, I think a lot of companies are selling the former. Hey, no, no, you'll, your car is going to look drive exactly the same. It's just going to be an, there's going to be an electric engine uh, powering it. Versus, like, no, you're going to have to drive differently. It's going to handle differently. Like, you have to. Uh, in the in the rain, uh, you're gonna have to it's it's it, you're gonna have to make different uh, sort of like driving adaptations. It's like that's well okay then then pro people probably reconsider that right now if you if you said and by the way we're the gasoline is gonna be made illegal in a year, um, people would say like okay well, I better do this I better transform my car this way. He's like no no gasoline you know we're gonna have different ways to approach it. it doesn't matter like trust me this is fine. I mean like I'm kind of like blowing up this metaphor in a lot of different ways, but. What companies are promising is like, no, you will not notice the difference. Your team will function exactly the same. You will interface with the CFO in exactly the same way. The growth models will work in exactly the same way. You will be able to make investment decisions using exactly the same logic. That is misleading. It's not true. So we're, we're almost out of time and we have like one more fun question, but I just want to add something and like maybe explain why I'm like cynical and like uh, almost, almost angry at this uh, point. Um, is because again we're talking about the same companies that a few years ago when they understood that hey wait a second like our our product is infested with fraud it's really really easy to defraud it rather than go and say hey uh please everybody like this is what you need to use and like um, so we're sorry for everything else it's like no we now have this like patch that is called an anti-fraud solution that basically 
just reports on what we're doing wrong and we're going to bill you for it. So I'm saying like, I'm, I'm like a little bit more cynical and like the ways companies approach this because again, no one wants to go and admit both to their investors, to their customers, hey, sorry, like everything we've been doing, scrap that. We're going to yeah. need to do it differently. No one wants to admit that. Uh, and yeah, so that's kind of like my two cents. But let's yeah. jump into the... the... The change is here. Like, I think it's it's already too deep in. Uh, we have to make those changes. Like, every company has to adapt eventually. So, yeah. But, well, but, but just just, yeah. To, just to kind of close that topic, like going back to this flying blind, you know, presentation that I have that I give, it's, it's also better. You're better off. There's so many more opportunities. You don't have hammer nail syndrome anymore. If you can adapt and build the probabilistic infrastructure you need for doing probabilistic measurement, that, by the way, is just required, or and and, and will be uh, it, it will be operationally necessary in a year's time. If you can do that, you have so much more opportunity, right? It, it opens up a lot more uh, channels that previously were off limits to you because they didn't support deterministic identity, and so you should want to do it anyway, even if. You thought that IP address attribution is going to be as performant as fingerprinting and it doesn't really matter. You should still want to adapt because it just creates so many new opportunities for you. I agree. And I think that if companies do adapt, they also, after they pass kind of the hurdles, they will also get better collaboration internally. Like if they have to adapt and they have to adjust the way they kind of make the budget allocation from the company management up to the UA manager. I think this is kind of what will help companies be better even internally to kind of collaborate better and to kind of work on better processes after they're all aligned and have methods that do not require going into the user level data that is already gone. Um, so as to our final and fun question, we were talking about marketing orchestration here in this white paper and we wanted to ask you, which instrument would you be playing if you were in an orchestra? Oh, um, I don't know. Uh, bassoon? I don't know. It's, I like the sound of a bassoon. We had pianists and we had the uh, musical triangle so far on the interview list. So at least you're original. Uh, I played trumpet in high school band, but I don't know. Wow. I guess most do symphonies have trumpets usually. I think yeah. they don't usually have brass. Yeah, they do. Of course, of course they do. Okay, well, I'd still probably stick with bassoon just because it's new to me. <laughs> it's a very cool instrument. Eric, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed it. Well, I did. Thank you for having me, and uh, good luck on the rest of the interview series. Thank you. Thank you.